Hello again, and welcome to Crosswinds, a series of conversations with America's healthcare leaders produced by the Vizient Research Institute. I'm Tom Robertson, Executive Director of the Institute, and I'm pleased to welcome Mike Dandorf, President and CEO of Tufts Medicine, a multi-hospital health system located in Boston, Massachusetts, and affiliated with Tufts University. I've had the pleasure of knowing Mike for 25 years, going back to his days at the University of Pennsylvania and through his tenure at Rush University Health System in Chicago. He's one of the brightest minds in American healthcare, and he's one of my very best friends in medicine. Mike, thanks for being with us. Hi, Tom. How are you? Doing great. Glad to have you with us. Well, I'm glad that you chose to do this as a podcast. I've always been told I have a face for radio, so uh, much better than a video. You and I both. Absolutely. Listen, Mike, to get us started, I'm going to take us back maybe about 10 years or so when we did a study that found that organizational structure is far less important than behavior in determining a tertiary medical center's success, whether you're talking about quality or efficiency. You've been a leader in a number of different organizational models. What do you think are the most important factors to success? Well, Tom, I think without a doubt, um, success is really contingent on its people. As you said, I've seen a bunch of different models. At Penn, the health system is an operating division of the university. The CEO reports to the dean. But the structure didn't really matter because uh, we were all aligned and our leaders acted more as partners with one another. At Rush, the health science university there was an operating division of the medical center. And the dean and I were peers in that model. And we shared responsibility for the faculty practice. Um, But we were completely aligned. So in a lot of ways, um, alignment was one of those critical issues of making sure that we were paying attention to the missions and the business, um, which were all critical issues. Here, the medical school is in the university and our academic center, Tufts Medical Center, along with the rest of our health system, is really completely separate from the university. We have a tight affiliation. But because of the shared commitment and the vision of the university president that I share, we found that uh, one way to enhance the impact of our clinical, academic, and research missions was to restructure the medical school dean's role to also be the chief academic officer for our health system. And it's certainly clear so far in my journey here uh, that we have more work to do, but I'm very, very optimistic about that. But a lot of it has to do with because the people are aligned. Um, And I'd say I've become a pretty strong believer in my career that it doesn't really have much to do about the organizational structure, but really uh, around such things as alignment and commitment and trust to work towards common goals uh, of the organization. I've had the fortune uh, to be part of some pretty high-performing organizations, as as you said. And uh, I think the structural issues that we always fought against was how do we keep from being too siloed? So that's, I think, an important aspect of, uh, of the work that we do um, is to try to fight the siloing of, of an organization. But beyond that, there's leadership alignment, starts with leadership alignment, and really being crystal clear about what our vision and goals are uh, and how important the roles of everybody are to achieve our goals overall. As an example, one of the things that we've really anchored to is trying to treat our patients like consumers and organizing in a way that reinforces an accountability to that vision and everything that we do. 
whether it's service or quality outcomes um, or how we think about investment in certain priorities or new models of care. So leader alignment is critical. Physician alignment is even more important. And I think that's particularly true in academic medical centers and academic centers that are part of a health system. In the case of uh, our physician faculty, are they in agreement with our strategic direction? Are they committed to the strategic and operational success of the organization? All really, really important things to be paying attention to. I'd probably put incentives as a key area to be focused on as well. Are the right behaviors being rewarded? And are those incentives aligned with what we're asking people to do? You know, organizations sometimes find themselves where incentives aren't quite right and take some adjustment. You know, fourth or fifth here is really focusing on organizing to execute. We, as academic centers, tend to attract some of the top talent uh, across the world <laughs> in many ways. Um, and I've certainly found when you put the right people in the right roles and give them the right incentives and ensure that they're aligned, they can accomplish just amazing, amazing things. And it's really our job as leaders to make sure that they're empowered and resourced and, and get regular feedback. But it may sound overly simplistic, but that's the key uh, in terms of some of these high-performing organizations. For sure, that doesn't happen by magic, but cultivating a culture where we all feel like we're better than any one of us is pretty paramount. You know, Mike, as I've spent the last quarter of a century traveling around and, and visiting mostly academic medical centers, but even large health systems, one of the things that I've been struck by is the importance of getting folks for whom the patient and, and their well-being is at the center of their attention rather than seeing patient care as kind of a means to an academic end or a, or a research end. And I agree with you. It it really doesn't so much matter how the boxes and the lines are, are organized on an organization table. What it really boils down to is whether or not uh, these brilliant minds come together with the patient's well-being at the center of, of their consciousness and getting them all focused on that and trusting that the teaching and the research will be just fine if we have a really stellar patient care organization. Do you agree with that? A hundred percent. A lot of it has to do with culture, right, as we're talking about, uh, and making sure that people feel like they're part of building that vision and that we're not losing sight of all of our missions. And that's an important aspect of what we do as leaders, right? Just to make sure that we're bringing those voices together and keeping people as aligned as we possibly can overall and keeping people focused on the things that we're trying to do, uh, which is first and foremost to cure human disease in some cases and prevent human disease in other cases that our academicians, our educators, our researchers all play meaningful, meaningful roles in that. And when they feel that, they lean in and get really, really focused on what we, can we be doing to improve the lives of those that we serve. Mike, one of the things that I'd like to talk to you about is what has been at least a decade, probably more, of mergers and acquisitions that have resulted in health systems having size, but I'm not convinced of their systemness. We see enormous clinical variation, a lot of redundancy of facilities and programs. And what I've come to be troubled by is the prevalence of high-risk, low-volume surgical programs. 
What do you think has kept us from consolidating into genuine systems and what has to happen for us to realize the untapped potential? I'd say if we were really being honest with one another, we'd probably say it's been a few decades where mergers and, and acquisitions generally have uh, overpromised and underdelivered in a lot of ways. And in many cases, systems formed for various reasons to try to get scale, um, to try to support the academic mission and have a certain patient population to make sure that we could do that. But I'd say, you know, at the root of some of this is integration and systemness is really hard and it's very complex. It requires a lot of change. And as humans, we don't like to change. And in some cases, it requires us changing things that have been perpetuated for just generations, have been heavily involved in, in M&A activity throughout my career. And you can be pretty wooed sometimes by the business rationale uh, or the, the transactional elements of a deal. And we oftentimes underestimate what it really takes to bring people together. The change management aspects associated with integration or what is often considered a cultural divide between two organizations, that they exist. We have to acknowledge them. And I think sometimes we just sort of look past that. And I think, you know, there are times where on the front end of some of these mergers that we take a pretty short-term view, right? We think there's strategic advantage or we can identify quick financial wins and we tend to ignore the difficulty of improving outcomes and, and starting to address those things like unnecessary clinical variations. And that requires a lot of leadership attention, a lot of focus. It does start and end with you know, bringing clinical teams together, addressing things like programmatic integration, performance improvement, service rationalization, to your point uh, about low-volume, high-risk surgical programs. And that takes trust, and trust takes time to build, right? So as leaders, we're creating an environment where we can have those honest conversations and build trust. But in a lot of ways, it requires us to leave egos at the door um, and not just focus on putting an org chart together or creating a certain initiative, but building a culture where we can really build trust. Often, if we you know, set too aggressive expectations early on in a merger, people get frustrated and that can oftentimes lead to behaviors that erode trust. So we have to be very open and communicative around those issues when we're setting these things up. And I think in the worst case, sometimes that trust is broken and, and people can't get it back. And uh, you hear about these mergers that have gone awry and never achieve much of anything. I think a lot of that has to do with the way that those leaders may have framed the reason for getting together and haven't been honest with one another. Mike, our latest research takes a new look at an old question, a question that we've been asking ourselves as an industry for a long time. Is healthcare a right or a privilege? And I think, uh, I think the answer is more than philosophical. I believe that we've seen 40 years of a failure by the market to generate sustainable spending or affordable prices, largely because we've mistakenly treated healthcare as a private good, more of a privilege rather than as a common good or a right that most folks need to have. So the market works really well for private goods like automobiles, uh, where, where we as a society can tolerate a lack of access due to an inability to pay. But for common goods, more like clean water, 
we typically do not want folks to be without it due to their inability to pay. And, and when we're talking about common goods, we more typically use rate regulation and public utility models. So, Mike, what would you say if I suggested that we should move to a rate-regulated public utility financing model for healthcare? I am generally not a big believer that regulation is much of a panacea, but I think we also have to acknowledge that um, the way that we've managed this, as you've said, over the last many decades, hasn't had this sort of outcome that we've wanted. Uh, I think we can all agree, and hopefully that we all believe that every American should really have access to quality, affordable health care. We know that the U.S. healthcare system really incurs higher costs that aren't really translating into better access or better quality and, and the kind of population health outcomes that we would like to be seeing overall. We also know that these aren't just provider issues, right, or hospital issues or physician issues, that there are a significant number of, of health equity issues that are driven by those things that we call social determinants of health. Um, things like safe housing and education systems or food deserts or reductions in violence that need to happen. And that oftentimes that's driven by poverty lines. You know, these aren't things that as a health system uh, or an academic center or large physician group are going to be able to solve alone, but they are societal. And I certainly strongly believe that we're going to need to figure out ways where the public and private sectors come together in ways that can have a material impact on these sorts of things. Um, and I don't think it's just about rate regulation, but it's around how do we start to deploy resources in a way that has a, a, a higher impact than what we've been able to achieve uh, heretofore, so to speak. I don't think rate regulation um, will really kind of change the social determinant issues in, in any way, shape, or form. But we know that healthcare spending on its own is rising at a, at a pretty alarming rate. And while maybe it slowed down a little bit um, right after the, the passing of the, uh, the ACA, um, it's certainly accelerating now. I was reading a study by the National Alliance of Healthcare Purchasers or Healthcare Coalition of sorts, um, and they were surveying a lot of large and, and mid-sized companies. You know, 80% of those companies favored hospital rate regulation. We know that the business community generally doesn't favor government intervention, but things have gotten pretty bad. So they're starting to talk about these sorts of things. Should we go to a Medicare fixed rate or Medicare plus fixed rate environment? I think that the efforts that we've made to control costs and, and put that on the back of consumers in terms of higher deductibles and co-insurance, that certainly hit the limits of affordability for most people. The CEO of that coalition had made mention that the reality is if systems want to develop and, and function like monopolies and drive up costs, that they may need to treat them like utilities, to your earlier point, and fix the way that we're paying for them in that regard. But my sense is that if, if we're really going to see a market correction, and maybe it is, we can anticipate that the government's going to want to intervene and figure out ways to, to lower our costs, that it's not just on a per unit basis, but that we start to think about how do we you know, organize in a way that might be more budget-based. You know, we talk about value-based care and you know, moving back to capitation, which 
didn't work in the 90s for sure. But are we in a better position to manage some of that now in a more meaningful way? I push back on the idea of rate regulation, but in some circumstances, if we don't solve our own problems, it very may well be what we're going to face. We've been pals for an awful long time, so so let me toss a crazy idea at you. Imagine for a minute uh, regional healthcare ecosystems, bigger than cities, maybe even encompassing multiple MSAs, uh, areas that are big enough to have sufficient resources so that you could get anything you needed clinically within that ecosystem. And then add to that a global spending budget, not capitation, no incentive for health systems to chase young, healthy enrollees and to leave behind sick folks, but a global spending budget for the entire ecosystem, billions of dollars given to the providers with the idea that whatever comes your way, you'll take care of it and you'll do it in an innovative way, in a compassionate way, and use the resources wisely. How would things change in healthcare conference rooms if we were to move in that direction? What I've learned over the past 20 years is when you start with, hey, I have a crazy idea. I should either turn and run (laughs) or uh, I should lean in because what you normally do is wind up challenging me and or whatever group that we're in to start to think a little bigger and really push beyond the status quo and what are the possibilities under the current framework. But the one thing that you said that struck me that I would argue isn't as important as this concept of supply-induced demand. And I'm just less convinced that that's our, our big problem. I think we've talked about it an awful lot, and people have said, well, there's a lot of waste that goes on in the system. And I round pretty regularly in the hospitals within our network, and you know, we're taking care of some pretty sick people. <laughs> and they need care. I don't think that the physicians are saying, well, you know, I just want to induce demand here. I just don't think that that's kind of what's happening. But I do think, to your point, is that we are a bit of a sick care system and that even when people get sick, we need to think about, are we treating them in the right places? And if we had ways to start to leverage some of the innovation and advances that um have happened over the last couple of decades. Can we do a better job at deciding where the best place for care is and get a little out of this, do people need care or not, right? The way that it all works right now is just expensive. It just adds costs anyway. And as I think of your model of geographic ecosystems, a couple of things come to mind. One is that over the last 20, 21 months, as we've been dealing with fighting this pandemic, I think we found ways that, that in fact, we can indeed innovate, right? We've embraced telehealth in a very different way. We figured out a way to keep care in the home in a very different way and started to pilot things differently. Can we avoid people coming into a hospital if they don't need to? Can we get the care lower, the lower the cost, I should say, um, and not compromise on quality? And so I think there's a lot of opportunities around that. You know, the current reimbursement system incentivizes us to figure out ways that we keep things on license instead of moving them off of our license. And all of those issues that you and I have talked for, I think, a couple of decades now about, Mm -hmm. is this really sustainable in the way that it works? And it hasn't changed. 
when you think about this broader ecosystem that we learned during the pandemic, um, and it certainly happened here in Massachusetts, and I know it happened in other markets around the country, the leadership of our governor brought together health systems. We met virtually a couple of times a week talking about what was happening. And in a lot of ways, we put competition on the shelf and really figured out ways to work together, keeping the public good at the center. In a way, we've proven we can innovate, we can work differently together, we can we can start to change the way that the healthcare construct works when we stay really focused on some of those bigger challenges. When you put that model out, the things that get in the way are, so how would you really govern such an animal, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Do people have to actually be part of one organization to manage that or can they collaborate and who oversees it? who make sure that people are playing by the right rules and you're not one party isn't taking advantage of another. Mm-hmm. And so I think that would have to get answered. And then I think of this other issue, do we really push for the ecosystem to consider these broader public health issues that we talked a little bit about? A couple of years ago, our friend Lawrence Fernstall mm-hmm. did a presentation at one of the uh, annual CEO meetings and showed an analysis where... For sure, the U.S. spends more on medical care, but we spend far less on the public health infrastructure and public health services than many other developed countries spend. And that when you put those things together, we look normal. We look pretty normal, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so if part of that global budget is, hey, we need to bring public health into that and we need to think about this in a much more holistic way and not just can we lower the cost of doing things to people, but really starting to engage people in healthy behaviors and address things much earlier in the disease state through some of the public health infrastructure? I think it has potential. Still, a lot of things to work out. I wouldn't necessarily, you know, wave the victory flag here, but it's something that I think is worth really debating about how could something like that work. I think we're way closer to the starting line than to the finish line in terms of answering some of those questions. But I look at my 40-year career and and what we've been doing hasn't worked. And so when I look at this, I kind of think we've got a system now where lower acuity providers are are almost forced to chase carriage trade business. They're forced to chase surgical business into areas that are borderline unsafe. I think you put your finger on something very important. I've watched you guys around the country collaborate with traditional competitors during COVID in a way that is unprecedented. And when you say we got to figure out how to govern it, I think we do. But I think you guys took one or two steps down that path already. You guys are brilliant people. If I gave you the right problem to solve, I think you'd probably solve it. And I think you'd probably start to work on things like mental health and comorbidities and chronic disease differently. I think the conference rooms would just be discussing different issues than they have in the past. If it were the Kentucky Derby, I'd put $2 on the horse. Well, you know, Tom, we both got our start in in the managed care world. Mm -hmm. And the tenants that we're talking about are all managed care tenants. Um, We just built the system in such a complex way that we have to dismantle part of it to bring it back together in a more rational way, I think. But the tenants still hold true. It's just that the insurers have gotten in the middle of things that they shouldn't be in the middle of. And that creates like these huge administrative expenses that just add to the costs. You know, it's probably 20% of the costs are 
associated with getting billing right and getting pre-approvals for things and authorization for medical necessity. Yep. And it's just a waste. <laughs> I'd be so much happier if, if I knew that a group of you guys who historically have been arch rivals and competitors in your geographic areas, if I knew that you guys were in a room together with $10 billion trying to figure out how to spend it to make people hurt less, die later, live longer and better, rather than trying to figure out how to get an EBITDA so that you could buy something that was before a competitor down the street bought it. I, I would just feel a whole lot better uh, knowing that the brightest people in the country are thinking about that. Well, Tom, I'm game. You write the $10 billion check and I'll get it organized. <laughs> I'll write it. I don't know whether or not it's going to bounce when it gets to you, Mike, but, but you know me, I can write a check with the best of them. Hey, listen, before we close this segment, and we've been talking about kind of some heavy stuff, and I always like to ask a question that allows the listeners uh, to get to know you in a, in a way that they otherwise wouldn't. I came up with a question that if anyone ever saw you uh, on a street corner being a really solid, middle-thinking, normal-looking kind of a guy, they would think I was making this question up. But have you been confused more times in your life with Bruce Springsteen or with Dennis Hopper uh, in Easy Rider, and you'll know why I'm asking that question. <laughs> um, well, I certainly don't look like either, right? You don't, no. But I, I guess you might think if I was riding my motorcycle, which I do, I own a Harley and I use it frequently on weekends. I guess I'd have to say, and you know this, I'm originally from New Jersey. I married a Jersey girl. Um, and I even once had the privilege of being in the Stone Pony when Bruce Springsteen showed up one evening to do an unannounced set and then took off. So I'd, I'd probably lean to Bruce Springsteen, who also <laughs> rides a motorcycle yep. uh, in that regard. And I say it for two reasons, because I've gotten to know more about him being from New Jersey, and I love his music. But he has often been viewed as somebody that thrives on camaraderie and teamwork. And uh, I do think that those are things that I'm pretty passionate about. And so I'd, I'd lean to Bruce Springsteen here instead of Dennis Hopper. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> well, you raised the one point that I'd like to close on, and, and that's the, this spirit of camaraderie. For many of the 25 years that I've known you, we've had this group of folks like you came up in similar career paths and we stayed together as a group for the better part of about 20 years there where we met every year. We were going to baseball games, I recall. We'd always meet in a city and we would have a dinner of hot dogs at a ball game. Listen, you get to know a person very well over two decades of, of hot dogs in ballparks, and I'm lucky to have spent that time with you. Mike, I, I appreciate you being with us, and I'm going to write you that check. Great. Well, I appreciate your friendship, Tom, and uh, you've done a lot to advance our industry for sure. Uh, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm so proud to be able to call you a friend. So I look forward to continuing this debate and the dialogue and really trying to do something special in our industry. I think it's time. Thanks a million. Appreciate it. And thank you for listening in. We hope you find these conversations thought-provoking and we look forward to welcoming you back for a future Crosswinds. I'm Tom Robertson. Until then. <laughs>